We're looking at uh, God and David today. And in particular, went too far, uh, where we pick up the story of David and 2 Samuel chapter 7. But I want to ask the question firstly, do you have a bucket list? Do you have a bucket list? You know, a bucket list of things you'd like to do or to achieve or to experience or even see before you die. Or maybe putting it another way, do you have any goals in life? Do you have any plans or strategies for achieving those goals? Your goals may include getting married, having children, buying or building a house, achieving a fulfilling career. It may be travelling the world, seeing the sights in this great creation God's given us to live in. Our goals may even include serving or caring for other people perhaps in our community here or perhaps overseas or further afield. You may even have the goal of serving the Lord in a particular ministry capacity. I think most people have some sort of goal or aspiration in life. However, some people have little or no idea as to how they will achieve that goal. Apart from possibly receiving a large inheritance or through Winning a windfall through gambling, that's not what, something I would recommend, by the way. But we dream. But there are others who do plan for the things they wish to achieve. And they can struggle with the frustrations of long delays in get, getting to their desired outcome. And sometimes, despite our good in plans and intentions and aspirations, circumstances occur in life that mean our hopes and our dreams can never be fulfilled or that they can be fulfilled in the way we want them to be fulfilled. We're told in Jeremiah 29.11, and it's a good place to start, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Good plans, plans not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future. And when God's plans align with our plans, we often find quite miraculous things happening that bring those plans to fruition. Sometimes, however, God intervenes to either put a stop to our plans or to cause our plans to change in nature and direction. At the time, we may not recognise his hand at work or even understand his reasons for causing our direction to change. Often we only see his purpose when we look back with the advantage of hindsight. Such was the case in the life of a young shepherd in ancient Israel, a young man named David. We have no idea what aspirations or plans David had for his life, but one day he was plucked from obscurity and anointed by the prophet Samuel to become, would you believe, the next king of Israel. We learn about this in 1 Samuel 16. David's anointing was actually done in secret because the throne was still occupied at that time by Saul, King Saul. But God had rejected Saul because of his indiscretions and he instructed the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem which is about eight kilometres south of Jerusalem, 
and go to the family of Jesse and anoint one of his eight sons to be the next king of Israel. So God directed Samuel to go to Jesse's hometown, his place, and he anointed Jesse's youngest son. Had to go through the other seven before he got to David. He actually had to call David in from the fields looking after the sheep. And David was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. But David had to wait. He had to wait until the time was right for him to assume the throne. Now many of us have read about the events of David's life and all, you can read about that in 1 Samuel. But in the intervening years, he was actually employed by Saul to be a court musician. And while there, he became friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. During this time, David became very popular, particularly when he killed the giant Philistine, Goliath. He even married Saul's daughter. So he rose in popularity, he rose in prominence. 1 Samuel goes on to tell us that due to David's increasing popularity, Saul became extremely jealous of David. So much so that he wanted to kill him. So David fled into the wilderness and for some years, hear the word years? For some years he managed to elude Saul's attempts to capture and kill him. But during this time, other disaffected people in Israel gathered around David and he actually gathered around him a band of about 400 faithful followers. This is quite a few people. And the book of 1 Samuel then ends with the story of Saul going to war against the Philippines. Philippines, I did it. Philistines! <laughs> I did that the other night. And we not. <laughs> Philistines. But this all ended badly for Saul because both he and his two sons were killed in the ensuing battle. By this stage, David was held in high regard by the southern tribes of Judah. The book of 2 Samuel then begins with David being made their king. Now David, here's a little map, a little hard to read on those screens, but the main points are highlighted there. Thanks, Stuart. He's good at this stuff. <laughs> Much better than I am, aren't you, mate? <laughs> but David ruled in the town of Hebron in the southern part of the country. And uh, he grew in strength, in power and influence. And after Saul had died, he, he gained control over the remainder of those tribes loyal to Saul, and the, which were basically the northern tribes of Israel. He spent about seven and a half years ruling from Hebron. But when he gained control of the whole country, he managed to, um, he moved his capital to Jerusalem. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years. He reigned as king for 40 years in total. During this time, David conquered the rest of the land that God had promised to Moses and Joshua at the end of the Exodus. And he established what is now known as the Kingdom of Israel. And he established that kingdom in what was previously known as the Promised Land. It's interesting that this land where the Israelites lived, this kingdom, this land that David was now the king of, was originally the land of Canaan. And it was first promised by God to, can you remember who? Abraham, thank you. 
Phew. <laughs> Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, very key chapter in the Bible. God promised Abraham that he'd be a great nation and that he would inherit a land. Now, just as an aside, to get an accurate set or a better sense of biblical history, it's helpful to look at when the various people, various names of various people came to prominence in the biblical narrative. When did they live? Well, Abraham lived about 2,000 BC. It's very round figures. About 2,000 years before Jesus. Moses, another significant character in the, in the Bible narrative, he lived about 1,500 BC. And David... His date is around 1,000 BC, just to get us in perspective here. So it took almost 1,000 years for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled. And it took 500 years for that same promise that God gave to Moses to be fulfilled. And you know, we're often quick to criticise the actions of various people in the Bible. But we need to keep these things in, in mind. Keep in mind the long periods of time that God took to bring actually his plans to fruition, for God to fulfil his promises to various people. It was a long, long, long time. So as we begin 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that David has finally come to a place of rest or place of peace from his enemies. He had made an alliance with Hiram, the king of Tyre, which enabled him to source the materials he needed to build a beautiful palace of cedar for himself in Jerusalem. And once he completed that great palace for himself and his family, his mind turned to building a temple, a permanent place, a permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant. Because David, above all else, he wanted to honour God. And this building a temple seemed like a really good idea at the time. Now, in David's time, it was important that the major god or the prominent god of a nation was worshipped in the temple erected in the capital city. So in 2 Samuel 6, we read how David brought the Ark of the Covenant. What happened there? Yeah, there we go. That's the Ark. Brought the Ark of the Covenant from a place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it had been sitting, basically, without a lot of notice being taken of it, for about 20 years. That's 20 years. Now this place is about 15 kilometres west of Jerusalem. Now the ark itself, let me remind you, was not worshipped as a god. But it was a visible representation of the presence of God. And David recognised the great significance of the ark as a footstool, as the footstool of God's earthly throne. And as a true king under God, David wished to acknowledge the Lord's kingship and rule over both himself and the people by restoring the ark to a place of prominence in the nation. And so the ark was brought to Jerusalem. Now from start to finish, this journey, remember we're only going about 15 kilometres, it actually took three months. This was because when they tried to first move the ark, they loaded it onto a cart pulled by some oxen. And, you know, it's really exciting. 
And David, it says, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrel systems and cymbals. That's a lot of music, a lot of noise. But it was a great event that was happening. David was excited, the people were excited. But unfortunately, this was not how the ark was meant to be moved. God had given specific instructions in Exodus 25 as to how the ark was to be moved. It was supposed to be carried by long poles on the shoulders of the Levites. So when the oxen stumbled and the cart tipped, a man by the name of Uzzah thought he was doing the right thing. He reached out to steady the ark and he was killed on the spot. God was angry. And he gives a rather shocking and vivid reminder to David and to the people about, to Israel, that those who claim to serve him must acknowledge his rule, firstly, and must obey his commands with absolute seriousness. They were not to do things their way just because they thought that was the right way, which is an important message for us, but rather they had to obey what God had directed them to do. Well, David got the message and decided to do his homework and just how God wanted his ark moved. And so it was three months later that David tried again. This time the ark was carried properly. At every six steps that were taken, David sacrificed a bull and a calf. So you can imagine how long that was going to take them, every six steps. Um, but they had a terrific barbecue along the way. But once the ark arrived at its destination in Jerusalem, David threw this huge party to celebrate this momentous occasion. And once in Jerusalem, David placed the ark in a specially prepared tent. Although it does not say, interesting, if this, was of this, this tent was of the same design as the tabernacle that the ark was housed in, during the time of the Exodus. But then, about 400 years had passed. Three or 400 years had passed, so I doubt if the fabric of the tabernacle would have lasted that distance. But anyway, David puts it in a, in a special tent in Jerusalem. And so we come to 2 Samuel 7. This chapter has great significance in the Old Testament. And it's seen as one of the high points of God's dealings with his chosen people because it marks an important milestone in God's unfolding plan of salvation for fallen mankind. In 2 Samuel 7, David reveals his desire to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan, who is identified as a prophet, advisor or confidant to David. He agrees with David. He says, oh, this is a really good idea, David. Let's build the temple. But God had other plans. Here we go. Somebody's got plans and God has other ideas. And he gives Nathan a message for David. God firstly asked why it was necessary to build a permanent residence for him. Because God had been guiding his people for a long time from a movable tent. And moreover, there was no divine command, no command of God that he'd ever given that a permanent house or permanent structure should be built for him. 
no temple. In verses 8 and 9 to Samuel 7, the Lord refers to David as his servant. Now, this was an honoured title. But at the same time, it was a reminder to David that although he was king and surrounded by those who served him, he too was a servant of God. And the Lord reminds David that it was he who took David from tending the sheep. It was the Lord who made him king. And it was the Lord who was with David throughout his life. It was the Lord who gave him victories over his enemies. And it was the Lord God who finally brought David to this time and this place of rest and peace. And it was like at first God reminding David of just who was really in charge here. This is God talking to the king. And then verses uh, 9 to 11. I'm not reading these passages, but just up there for reference so we can follow in the uh, padded chair Bibles. In verses 9 to 11, God turns David's plans on their head. David has first promised a great future. And God promises to give the people of Israel a place of their own. Which brings to mind, hey, the promises to Abraham. And then later on to Moses to give them a land, give the people a land to call their own. God also promises to defend and protect them from their enemies and to bring them to a place of rest or peace. Again, we're reminded of God's covenant blessings to Abraham. The words, a great name in verse 9. Look far beyond David's own lifetime when one who was greater than David would nevertheless crown with new significance all that David stood for, all that David represented as king. Then in verse 11, the Lord turns the tables on David and says that instead of David building a house for the Lord, the Lord would build a house for David. But there's a play of words here. Because the Lord is not going to build a physical house for David. But instead he'll build the house of David. In the sense of like a dynasty of David's descendants. Verse 12. Looks firstly to the short term future and one of David's offspring would be the one who would build the temple of the Lord. As we read further we know that That son of David was Solomon and he was the one who built the temple. But then verse 13 looks to the distant future when a member of David's line would establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever. And this future king, it says there, would have a close personal relationship with the Lord. And it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, two distinct but related themes in subsequent biblical literature in the, in the, uh, as we read through the Bible, through the prophets, and then even on to the New Testament, the, they are sourced from this chapter. It's first the, the theme that the Davidic line, the line of David, is given the right to rule forever. And the Lord gives his word that he will not withdraw his steadfast love 
from David's son as he did from uh, King Saul before David. And so when the Lord builds David's house, he will establish a dynasty that would actually last forever. The fact that David's physical rule came to an end and have been seen by the prophets as failing as we read through history, how things uh, turn out rather badly for the kingdom of Israel. That's another story. But this gave rise to a second theme which developed over the centuries as a reinterpretation of the promises to David. And that was that a future descendant of David would come as the Messiah. And this Messiah would come to free his people and establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness and that that kingdom would last forever. All this because David expressed a desire to honour the Lord. He received far more than he could ever have hoped for or that he could ever have hoped to give back to God. And any disappointment at having to allow someone else the privilege of building the temple was far outweighed by the assurance of the blessings to David and his descendants that would extend into eternity. David's response to this incredible revelation and his, of his part in God's purposes and plans was to worship God. His prayer in a nutshell in the second part of 2 Samuel 7 was that all that the Lord had spoken may be fulfilled and through it all the greatness of the Lord may become obvious and apparent to everyone. And so it came about that David gave up his, David gave up his plans to build the temple. It was a good plan. It was a great plan. It was an honest plan, but it was not God's plan. And though he was the king of Israel, he accepted that he had to defer to a higher authority. In other words, he had to defer to the God of Israel. And it was to God to whom he owed his calling through the prophet Samuel. It was to God who he owed his preservation from mortal danger as King Saul pursued him. And it was to God that he owed his calling to be the king of Israel by the common assent of the people. Recognition by David that he owed his throne to the sovereign Lord God involved humble acceptance of the role of a servant. Your servant, as David calls himself ten times over in this prayer. You know, David was far from perfect. We can spend a lot of time looking at the character of David. We haven't got time to do that today. But David grasped this all-important truth about himself. And it was because he valued so highly his call to serve the Lord God that he was sensitive and responsive to rebuke. And he repented when he stepped out of line. For this reason, David knew Forgiveness and restoration of fellowship, both of which eluded Saul before him because Saul could never bring himself to take his hands off the reins of government or readily admit to being in the wrong. Saul, by clinging tenaciously to what he regarded as his kingly prerogative, lost the kingdom. David, however, was more concerned about honouring the Lord and then guarding his own reputation. 
And he had his kingdom made sure forever. It was this promise that gripped future generations, especially in the troubled times, especially during the, um, the time the Israelites spent in, um, in exile in Babylon. And then they were conquered by the Greeks and then later the Romans. But this promise caused the Davidic line to be recorded with more than usual care by different branches of, the, of David's family. So that when the Gospels came to be written, Matthew and Luke, Luke each included a genealogy of Jesus that included David. <coughs> because it was Jesus who finally fulfilled the promises made to David. Peter made this incredible declaration to the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It's worth looking at that again. Acts 2, 29 through to 36. When Peter said, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David, our magnificent King David, did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until you make your enemies, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. He is the promised one. Now there's a number of things that we can take from this passage in um, 2 Samuel and later on in Acts. Firstly, uh, is that working? That God is sovereign. God is king. God rules. Ultimately, this world is his. He created it. He made it. He sustains it. He is the Lord or the boss or the CEO of this world and he allows us to live in it. We need to keep that in perspective. We need, like David, to humbly acknowledge that we are God's servants. Secondly, God has a plan, a plan for the salvation of mankind and he brought that to fulfilment in the death of Jesus on the cross. You know what? God also has plans for us personally and individually. And his plans, you know, they may not be our plans. David wanted to build the temple, but God had other ideas. And it was David's son Solomon who eventually built the temple. So the message to us is to be flexible and adaptable and open to go where God leads us. Even with, even with plans that are good plans, they may even be great plans. Hold them lightly. 
as they may not be God's plans. Thirdly, thirdly, there we go. God is a promise-making God and he keeps the promises he makes. You know there's something like 3,000 promises that God makes in Scripture, in the Bible? And you know what? If he has made a promise, you can be sure that he will keep it. And fourthly and finally, God's timing is often not our timing. There may be a long time to wait. So ask for patience. Ask for patience. This is a hard lesson to learn in our fast-paced world of instant gratification. We see something, we want it, we want it now. We struggle to wait. We often overlook the fact that it took years for David finally to become king of Israel after he was anointed by Samuel. And how long did it take for the promise of a Messiah to be fulfilled? There was about a thousand years between David and when Jesus came. And there's been another 2,000 years have passed since Jesus was crucified. And we are still waiting in eager anticipation of the fulfilment of his promise to one day return to judge the earth. But rest assured that God's timing may not be our timing, but it will be the right timing. So as we wait expectantly for his return, may we do so with patience and with confidence in our God to bring his plans to fruition as he demonstrated repeatedly throughout scripture. And may we do so with an attitude of humility and a willingness to serve our awesome God with a grateful heart. And may we learn to be content with the life our gracious Lord has blessed us with. Amen.